Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Nebraska is cool. The only problem is the last time I was ever in Nebraska, I was just driving through, and supposedly that's a cliche for everyone. Um, I got to have a Ranza yesterday, and uh, Andrew, well, Evan, <laughs> was driving near the stadium, uh, the big football stadium, and I asked him if the Bears has ever played there, and he goes, funny, that's a high school um, that's a college um, uh, stadium. Um, I'm not a big American football fan, and, and that's particularly because I don't understand the game. For the last 10 years I've been here, I kind of have been hoping that somebody will explain to me what the game is. But then the problem is when you, um, when you go to these games with people who are enthusiastic, they don't want to be spending their time explaining it to you. They want to watch the game. Um, I actually have perhaps one of the, the longest connection with, with this particular church. On my first journey ever in America, I got to meet this, this wonderful lady um, who is so proud of her Sweden origins, and that's Julie Smith. And Julie Smith just happened to attend the same church with me for over two years. And then um, she also happens to be Stephanie's mom. <laughs> and then Stephanie happens to be this guy's wife, uh, which is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great connection. I didn't connect it at the first when they asked me to come here um, and talk to you guys. But then, you know, a few... Uh, uh, Minutes later, I start connecting the last names and the church and, you know, the, the Julie Smith. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be home. So this is home for me. Um, so I wanted to bring the greetings from my wife, uh, Sarah Buki. She's been a great part of who I am today and a great part of what my story is today. Um, unfortunately, Sarah and I these days get to wake up like zombies in the morning because we just had a, a baby two months ago who unfortunately doesn't sleep during the right times of the day. So, <laughs> you know, he prefers to wake up at like 1 a.m. and stay up all night long and then go back to sleep in the morning. Uh, Stephen uh, Bujobuki is our third son, and he's two months old. We also have two other children. Liam Book is uh, our first, he's nine years old, and then Tristan is six. And um, Sarah and I have been uh, together for 10 years. We've known each other for 13 years. Um, our family loves selfies. I don't know about yours, but that selfie is, oh, there it is. So we take selfies every, every once in a while. And then next you will see Stefan's picture has... Um, A cowboy. <laughs> Texas experience. So, first of all, I wanted to talk to you guys about the Democratic Republic of Congo because, um, you know, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that everyone in this room know where Congo is. So, if you don't mind, pull up the map of Africa for us. That's Africa. And the country in the red is the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
It's right at the heart of Africa. In fact, Africans, especially Congolese, we pride ourselves as our country being the trigger of Africa. Because if you look at the African map, it's almost like a pistol, and the country is right at the trigger of it. And then next is just what the country looks like. The third picture is what we're talking about here today. Uh, that. And that is the Equatorial Province. Back in the 60s, uh, I, don't, I don't have that story very well, the Covenant Church actually went to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I don't understand why they ended up in Equatorial, but the story is that the president back then didn't want the other denomination to invade the Catholic Church that controlled the Congo as a result of um, uh, the colonialism. So they assigned specific areas to specific churches, and that's how this particular province was assigned to uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church. So for 56 years almost, the church has been heavily invested in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But today, I wanted to really spend my time talking to you guys about the uh, Congo Kids Program, Congo Kids Sponsorship Program, and that's what brings me here. And I'm going to put this right out there. I am a result of the sponsorship. So if you ever doubt a second what your money does, for those of you who support those kids, look at me, because I am the result of that. And my story, my personal story, is no different than any one of your stories here, except mine just happens in a, in a different country. The scriptures we write today have been um, very inspiring to me. Um, and I was saying my wife has been a big part of my story and my life, and without her, I'm pretty much lost. Because just two days ago, she was helping me how to pronounce job. Job. And we spent quite a few times going over it. But Job's story is a story of pain, right? It's a story of, of suffering. It's a story where Job is learning something. And during that learning process, Job's faith is being tested. God is testing Job. But what's even much more important in these passages, it's also a lesson about truth. The truthfulness that God wants to detect in Job. He wants to, in Job, he wants to find out if this guy is as solid as he thought he was. The problem with trust is that trust always comes with Patience, and then patience comes where nothing seems to be really changing. You know, it's kind of this static way of living that has pain in it, but then it's not changing as fast as you thought it well. Throughout chapter 23, there is this struggle between the spirit and flesh. There is this struggle between the fear and the faith. This book talks about Job a lot. But 
it also talks about who caused Job's troubles. It's the devil. And Job did not seem to know that the devil was the one causing his troubles. So, God merely permitted Job to suffer. However, Job did not even realize that. It's painful to go through suffering. It's, it's hard. It's harsh. And sometimes it hurts. And I want to try to connect that story of Job with my own personal story. I was born of a father who was uh, a mining security guard. My father barely earned any salaries. And this seems unreal, but it is true. The only benefit we got from my father's job was the fact that we had a house to live in. So the, the, the job provided him um, with the housing. My father never went to school, so he didn't have the opportunity to go to school. But he had devoted his life to raise his children um, in, a, in a successful way. However, he did not have a means to do so. My mother, on the other hand, who's been a, part of, a big part of my life, ran a $20 business. Through that business, she will sell tomatoes on the market, onions on the market, you know, sometimes fishes and stuff like that. But then she, can use, she will use that money to provide for all of us. My mother, every single morning, will wake up at 4 a.m. She will go get us water. She'll make sure that we had clean wa uh, water to drink, water to shower. Uh, she will prepare us, every kid, every, everyone in the morning. But then after that, she will go to the market. She will spend all day selling tomatoes. She normally got home around 6, 7 p.m. And then when she got home, that's when she started cooking for dinner. And then we will um, get food on our table. My mother's life has never been easy. But our childhood was also a difficult childhood. The first time I ever wore a pair of shoes, and I still remember very well, it was a flip-flop. I was 11 years old. And my parents could not afford this stuff for us. My family lived a really, really difficult life. A life where you could totally easily give up. The pain, the suffering, the tests. God has always been there for us. He's already provided for us. We, I'm, I'm part of a bigger family. I, I have so many cousins and sisters and nephews. My household, when I was growing up, had like 32 kids plus, you know, few adults in it. A very small house. We slept in the living rooms, in the bedrooms. Some slept on the floors. And we grew up like that as a community. But my, my, my parents had 13 kids. My father had five from his previous marriage, and my mom had eight kids. And I'm, I'm seven of um, eight kids, uh, seven of the 13. My younger brother, who came uh, right after me, passed out, uh, died um, at the age of 
maybe two, three days. And my younger brother died of a preventable disease. He died of malaria. It had been not noticeable to us, not noticeable to my family, not noticeable to the community. Until then, I started going to most of these, you know, friend funerals, preventable diseases. My childhood was so rough that my parents could have easily give up their faith, but they choose not to. In my hometown, the, one of the businesses there is digging for gold. As surprising as it sounds, Congo has so many mineral resources, but we don't have bulldozers, we don't have big machines to dig and get those out. So people actually go and work and dig gold. And this is where it connects a little bit with this scripture, because when you're digging for gold, you get them out of a rock. So you get big rocks. I actually had some pictures of, of, of a gold in a rock in my phone. I forgot to put that. But then you get to pretty much, you know, grind, ground the, 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 the rock so it becomes a little dusty. But then after that, you filter it. And then the last thing is you have to burn the gold. And you use acid to do that so that you can only collect the pure gold out of it. For so many... This is what God does to every single one of us. He tests us. He filters us. He burns us. And then he collects the gold. Because the gold is pure. My parents have been tested that, like that. I have been tested like that. I was the only lucky kid in my family to finish high school, to go to university, and eventually to get an MBA from the United States of America. My siblings never had the same chance. And that is because my parents could not afford school. But also school was really, really far from home. So I had to wake up every day at 5 a.m. and I would walk about seven miles to go to school. So I walked back and forth about 14 miles a day just to go seek education. The problem is when my parents could not afford school, I did not want to stop because it, it sounds kind of, you know, you're not a cool kid if you don't go to school. So I would wake up in the morning, walk maybe three and a half miles, find some friends who were in kind of a similar situation who wanted to play soccer, and I would stand there and play soccer with them. And we would do that all day until our friends whose parents could afford school came back, and then, you know, we all went home, and me and my bugs, and it, it was as if I, I, I just spent the entire day in school. The reason I got lucky is because I also was good at soccer. And there was this one missionary from Belgium who was just passing by, merely driving his car by. And then he decided to stop and watch our soccer game, you know, these kids playing. And when we were done, I started walking, pick up my bag, and he asked me why you didn't go to school. Instead, you came here and played soccer. And I told him it's because my parents couldn't pay for it. So I just come here, play soccer all day, and then go home. And he told me, if I was to pay for your education, will you go to school? 
And I thought, oh, with pleasure. So Baba Lu, Baba means father, Lu, decided to pay for my primary and uh, secondary school education. All of a sudden, I had a high school degree, which was great. And I was very, very excited, and I decided that I needed to go to university. The only problem is that the university cost $150 at a time, and my parents, if they could not afford $3 a month of you know, primary school, how the heck were going to afford $150 a year? Now, keep in mind, the university in the United States is approximately fifteen dollars to $20,000 in academic year. We're talking $150 every single year. So, as a high school graduate in the entire village and everybody else, I was in a better position to actually go and get work. And then I could earn my own salary and try to pay for my own education. The the only problem was that my hometown has started undergoing this war. In 1998, 1996, a war broke in Congo. 1998, some more rebels came. By the time I was graduating high school in 2001, 2002, that's when it got really, really, really rough. And I had lost all hopes of going to university, all hopes of um, pursuing of, of life pursuit. And my friends, the same. I had friends who would join militia groups because that was much more beneficial for them. Um, they would carry a gun. I remember, vividly remember, one of my friends with whom I went to secondary school would carry his gun and the gun would be dragging on the floor because him and the gun were the same height. And, you know, we gave up hope, and everybody in the village, the village was devastated. One morning we woke up, the war was so bad that, you know, we've, we've already been about a month underneath our bed hidings, hiding. And the UN sent out notice because we had United Nations forces with the Uruguayan forces surrounding uh, the areas that I grew up in. And they had a, a, an eternally displaced camp with a lot of people um, uh, living there. So my family decided to go to that camp because it was the safest thing for us to do at the time. And my father decided that he needed to stay home so he can protect our belongings, which was kind of a smart move, given that you know, having belongings in Congo is, is, is really difficult. So me and my family went to the UN camp. My, mom stayed, uh, my father stayed home. But at the UN camp, one of the military um, person who was there told everybody that if your family member is not here, consider them dead uh, because it's just so rough outside and there was no way the UN was going to help everybody else. I was a young man, 17 years old, fired up and um, a little bit connected in the, in the area. So I decided I wanted to go back and get my father. I told my mom I'm going to go, I'm going to disguise myself to the militia group, and then I'm going to go and try to get my father. You know, when you're, when you're 17 years old, you think you're a hero, 
and you, you know, you, you kind of have this, you know, like, a uh, lot of respect for your dad, that I'm going to go get my dad. That's kind of the vibe, the drive that I had. So I went home, you know, through bullets and, um, and fightings, and I actually got home, and the militias were like 15, mi- 15 uh, meters away from entering my house. My house was pretty much next. I got my father, and then we start walking back toward the UN. And as we got closer to the UN, the UN was like, the company was like at the street, and we are here. The Uruguayan forces and the militias start fighting. So we are pretty much in between the bullets. But God is, God is mysterious. God works in our lives in mysterious ways. That fighting... What, was cha- what changed my life and what is perhaps one of the reasons why I can stand here and preach to you guys today. Because my father ran toward the UN camp and then I ran the other direction from the UN camp. So my father made it safe to the UN camp and I did it. And I found myself in a group of approximately 10,000 people Walking in one direction. That's all we could do was go, 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 and go. We walked for a month for approximately 200 miles toward the south of the city. I knew some of the people in the crowd, but, you know, most of the people were, you know, from, from, um, from our city. It was a rough walk. It was the most difficult walk of my entire life. Because throughout that road, there were people who lost their lives. There were people fighting over bottles of water. Uh, water. The, the UN will fly helicopters and, and um, uh, 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 drop, um, not cookies, but some kind of a, um, nutrients biscuit uh, that we will eat on our way. And I eventually made it to a city called Goma. When I made it to the city called Goma, And again, I want you to keep this in mind that our God works in a mysterious way. I met this Anglican priest whom I've never met in the past who felt pity for me and said, you know what? Instead of you staying here in Goma where you have nobody to stay with, why don't you come with me in the city of Bukavu and then you you can live with us for a little while until, um, until you can go back to your family. So he took me in his city. Three months down the road, I met a couple of missionaries, a couple of British missionaries, Jenny and, and David Annis. Their pictures are somewhere in, in, in the slides. But David and Annis heard my story. They, they, they heard about my work. They heard about the, the struggle that I've went through. And they asked me, what do you want to do next? I told them, oh, the plan was to go to university. So if you guys can afford $150, I will not even go back home. I will go to the university. Meanwhile, in my parents' mind, is that fight and that separation, that was it. My family thought I was gone. They thought I was, you know, they, they lost me. For three years, for three years, without phone, without communication, um, they, they did not know where I was. But then our God works in mysterious ways. 
that he put me in college during those three years and actually graduated with a public law degree, international public law degree, and actually even started practicing law without my family even knowing what I was doing or what I was up to. Or, you know, in my mom's words, I was, I was dead and she already considered me as one of those ones that were gone. And during that time, I also happened to meet the wonderful lady, my wife, Sarah. Sarah and I both um, were doing things around the same way. As I was going through my war and my issues and the test of God, and God is shaping me up, God is making me hard as a pure as a gold, Sarah from Hampshire, Illinois. I don't know how many has been in Hampshire, Illinois, but it's a, it's, a, it's a small farmland. This is a 21-year-old who's telling her parents that I get to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. How many in this room will let their 21-year daughters go to the Democratic Republic of Congo where every single morning you wake up, the only thing that comes out of that country is that people actually killed people? How many? But her parents said, you know what? If that's God's calling, that's where you're going. And in the same time, God is working on me from Bunia, bringing me to Bukavu. So the both of us, we met in Bukavu. That's why I say God has a blessing for every single one of us. Just when you don't plan it, where you think that he's left you go, he's, he's let you go, but then it shouldn't be an element of discouragement for us. It shouldn't be the moment to let go. It shouldn't be the moment where you lose your trust in God. It shouldn't be the moment where you take a pathway that leads you away from knowing Christ. Because... It doesn't matter how long that pain and suffering takes. God will always come through. That is our God. He will always come through. No matter how long it lasts. No matter how painful it is. But then when you go through the pain, that's what shapes you. That's what makes you even trust Him more. Pray Him more. Believe in Him more. Because our God, my God, your God, always comes through. When I finished my education in Bukavu, I had already met Sarah. Sarah and I, you know, started working together for Food for the Hungry International. I actually received a phone call from one of my friends who had just received, my, one of my friends in Bukavu had just received a phone call from Bunya, and he received a phone call from a guy I just went w with to the high school, and that person actually knew my parents very well. So he asked, in their conversation, the phone conversation somewhere, my friend said, oh yeah, I'm here with uh, Flory as well. He's like, what do you mean, Flory? The Flory I went to school with? He said, yeah, the Flory I went to school with. He's like, but we thought he was dead. He's like, no, I'm here with them. He's just graduated. He's a lawyer now in Bukavu. And he's like, can I talk to him? So I start talking to him and he said, oh, I was with your father this morning. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Because I was in the same impression that I had just lost my entire family. So I told him, I, I don't believe you. Why don't you take your phone, take it home. 
when I talk to my father, then I will, I will, I will uh, believe that you're saying the truth. He took the phone home, and I was able to speak with my parents three years after I left my hometown. Our God works in mysterious way. Our God tests us. Our God makes us to become pure as God, as gold. Our God wants that purity. They will run, he will run you through the test, the hardship, but we still need to believe in him because he will always, he will always come through. When you read 1 Peter verse five, expect, uh, uh, chapter 5, expecting the, the, the verse 10, you will realize how much of a God of grace our God is. He will bring you the, the eternal life. After you've suffered a little while, our God will always come through. He will always bring you the, uh, the grace. God has restored my life here in America. God has restored my life that today I can stand in front of you and ask you to sponsor kids in the Congo. He's using me in the way that he's, he's been preparing me for. The reason I'm here today is because God has tested me. And he's known that you are the person I'm going to send. I didn't tell you guys about my background, but I'm a, I'm a business major. I'm not a preacher. I've been telling even how, how often I've been hesitant of, of going to seminary despite all the calls to join seminary. But God is using me to do his work. And that is because our God is God of all grace. And he's the, the, he's the God who provides grace for the people who've lost it. It doesn't matter how long the suffering in Congo happens. It's been 22 years since the first war broke in Congo. But the people of Congo still believe in God. They still believe that their God will deliver. And I still believe that their God will deliver. But then I know exactly how that God is going to deliver. Because he goes through you to sponsor these kids in Congo. And then those kids are going to be the future of Congo. And those kids are going to change not the region, not the community, but an entire country. God is bringing me here because he knows you are the way. It's not a coincidence. God has a plan for every single one of us. Yesterday I was meeting with a couple of pastors. Evan was one of them. And he told me, who would have thought? Who would have thought you will be in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska? Well, I'm not saying Lincoln is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Who would have thought? Ten years ago, I would have never believed that I will be one day in Lincoln, Nebraska. Heck, a year ago, I would never believe I will be in the middle of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, speaking to your congregation about the Congo Kids Project. But it's because God is mysterious. He works in mysterious ways. He knows here, today, one, two, three people may choose to sponsor a kid. Those two, three kids that those people choose to sponsor will sponsor five more in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those five will then sponsor five more each. 
And then that's where the momentum builds. That's where a community gets changed. That's where peace comes about. That's where education comes about. That's where kids are not going to die from preventive disease anymore. That's where kids will get clean water. That's where kids will get the opportunity to get educated. Thank you so much for letting me speak to you today. Just remember, our God will let you run through the hardship. He will let you run through the pain and the suffering. But he ultimately wants you to become like gold, pure like gold. Do not, do not lose your faith in my God. Do not you lose your faith in Pastor Evans' God. Do not lose your faith in your God. Let's pray.